The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Yes, Lord, this is your word. I pray that as we come to your word this morning, that we would, uh, that you would open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things in your law. Um, We wait for you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever longed for someone to see you and think well of you? Maybe someone famous or one of your heroes? Maybe a pastor, a coworker, father, mother, siblings, husband, wife, children? Have you ever worked yourself ragged to try to get them to see you and be pleased with you? This feeling finds its ultimate expression in our relationship with God. Have you ever longed for God to see you, to be pleased with you, to think well of you? What things have you done because you hoped that God would see you? If, as we've seen in the last few weeks, that the ultimate problem is that we have sinned against God and are separated from the source of life and joy and peace and face the sentence of death, this is the ultimate question. How can I know if God is pleased with me? This is the question I want to place before us this morning as we walk through Genesis 6. Why was God pleased with Noah? Is this favor available to us? If it is, how is it available? Over the last couple weeks in Genesis, we've seen a world sick with sin and dominated by death. But we've also seen that sin and death do not always win. We've seen God preserving a family of people who cling to him by faith, a line that trusts the promise of an offspring coming who will bruise the head of the serpent, a line that walks with God, a line that calls on the name of the Lord. We've also seen that the story of Genesis is pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and conquer sin and death once for all. We've met the God who keeps his promises. This week we'll see God's faithfulness again, but it will be helpful to stop and note that there are two sides to God's faithfulness. In our passage to say, we will see that God is faithful to judge sin as well as faithful to save those who cling to him by faith. The story of God's response to sin only heightens the importance of our question this morning. How can I know that God looks on me with favor so that I may live and not die? As we walk through our passage, we'll see three movements. First, we'll see the extent of man's sin. Second, we will see God respond with sorrow and judgment. Third, we will see God provide a way of salvation for those who believe. If that sounds a little bit like the gospel to you, you're right and you know where we're going with this. First, we see the extent of man's sin. Chapter 6 begins with some strange verses about sons of God and daughters of men and Nephilim. Um, But I think Moses gives us a summary statement that helps us to navigate these. 
In Genesis 6:11, he says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. So at least these verses describe for us some ways in which the earth had become corrupt and violent because of man's sin. These are problems that Moses has already prepared for us earlier in the book of Genesis. We saw the corruption of marriage in the curse when God said to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. We also saw it with Lamech when he took two wives and departed from God's good design for marriage as a union of one man and one woman before God for life. We saw violence in the, in the curse when God promised enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We discovered that this isn't just about women hating snakes, but it's about those who trust God, those who do not trust God opposing those who do trust God. And we saw it play out in the first murder when Cain killed Abel. We saw it again when Lamech escalated violence and killed a man for striking him. So by the time we get to Genesis 6, we should be expecting these themes to continue, and they do. First, we see the, cor- the corruption of God's good gift of marriage. When the, daughter- when the sons of God see that the daughters of man were attractive or good and took them. This should sound familiar to us. Moses is reminding us of Eve taking what is forbidden when she saw that the tree was good and took its fruit. So whatever else we say, we can say that the relationships in Genesis 6 are forbidden relationships. But what is it that makes these relationships forbidden? I think the answer lies in the identity of the sons of God. Well, the idea that being a son of God shows up all over the Bible This exact phrase, sons of God, only occurs six times in the Old Testament. Two of them are here in chapter 6. One is in Deuteronomy, and it's unclear what it's referring to. The last three are in the book of Job, where they're a technical term for angels. So this would mean that in Genesis 6-1, some angels left heaven, came to earth, married women, and had children with them. Now, this seems strange to our modern ears. But it helps to make sense of a couple of passages in the New Testament in 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10, and Jude 5 through 8, where God judges the angels who sinned by leaving their proper places to indulge in immorality and pursue unnatural desires. Some people have argued instead that the sons of God are descendants of Seth, or tyrannical rulers possessed by demons. But whether or not I'm exactly right on this, we must say that it was something corrupt and it was worthy of judgment. Second, we see violence breaking into God's good world in verse 4. While the identity of the Nephilim is unclear, we do know that according to verse 4 that they are mighty men of old, men of renown. Now, in the Bible, mighty men and men of renown are always warriors. So these Nephilim were probably ancient warriors whose wicked violence was so great that it was legendary like Gilgamesh, Beowulf, or Odysseus. So we can ask, how did things get so bad that people are engaging in forbidden relationships and filling the earth with violence? 
Moses shows us the heart of the problem in Genesis 6, 5. Look there with me. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention, only evil continually. Moses says it three times. Mankind is bad, bad, bad. That is the source of all these problems. Mankind was supposed to keep and guard the garden and fill the earth with the image of God. Instead, they have corrupted the creation and filled it with violence. As we've walked through Genesis, we've seen that these stories are indeed history. They really did happen. But they are also mirrors for us to examine ourselves. So we could look at the sexual insanity, the gender confusion, and the high divorce rates in our world today, and we could say that the world is still corrupted and we wouldn't be wrong. We could look at abortion on demand, lawless criminals, police corruption, the war in Ukraine, and we could say that our world is still violent today and we wouldn't be wrong. But if the heart of the problem is that the problem is our hearts, we need to look at ourselves and ask, where is there corruption and violence in my own heart? You might have not been tempted to marry an angel, but you might have pursued physical pleasure or emotional intimacy outside God's design for marriage. Maybe you haven't participated in murder, but you might have simmered in unchecked anger wishing ill on those close to you and lashing out with harsh words or murderous silence, or worse. Maybe you have lust and anger under control, but have you indulged other fleshly desires and dominated others in other ways? Do you see yourself in this story anywhere so far? If you do, you may be feeling fear and shame. You may not be feeling God's favor right now. Take heart. The bitter medicine makes the cure all the sweeter. We must know that we are great saviors, great sinners, to know how great our Savior is. So we've seen the extent of human sin. Second, we will see God respond with sorrow and judgment. In the text, we see God respond in two ways. First, God is grieved. Second, God is angered. So first, we see in Genesis 6-6 that God regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And at the end of Genesis 6-7, he says, I am sorry that I have made them. He says it three times. God is sad, sad, sad. But how can God regret a decision? Did he make a mistake and have to backtrack to plan B? Well, I don't think so. I think another passage in the Bible that talks about God's regret can help us here. In 1 Samuel 15, God regrets that he made Saul king, but right in the middle it says, The glory of Israel will not lie or regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So if we take this seriously, we have to say that in one sense, God does regret, and in another sense, 
he does not regret. So when we talk about God regretting and being grieved, we can say, on the one hand, God is truly saddened over sin, and yet, on the other hand, God's plan has not been thwarted. So where originally God looked at his creation and looked on mankind and delighted in what he had made and declared that it was all very good, here, God looks on his creation, he looks on mankind, and is grieved to his heart because they have sinned and ruined themselves and marred his image and glory in the world and have filled his good creation with corruption and violence. I think it is worth pausing to ask, do you believe that your sin grieves God? Do you believe that the God who fills heaven and earth and who knows the heart of every man sees the depths of your heart, sees the corruption and violence, and is sorrowful. We often think of the wrath of God towards sin, but not the sorrow of God towards sin. Do you ever remember doing something wrong as a kid, and when you expected your dad or your mom to be angry, they were just sad instead? Maybe you've experienced this with your spouse or your coworker or a friend. There's a different sort of shame that comes when you're expecting anger and all you see is that you have made someone you love sad. But as we move on, the second response we see is that God is angered by sin. While this text only predicts the flood, we'll cover the flood in Genesis 7 next week, I hope that we can feel a little bit of the weight of it here nevertheless. God declares his intention to judge sin in three places. The first declaration is in Genesis 6-6. God sees and grieves human sin and says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. The second declaration is in verse 13 where God says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The third declaration is in verse 17. I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. He says it three times. God is mad, mad, mad. Where in the beginning God called dry land out of water and gave the breath of life to all living creatures, here God is going to take away the breath of life from all creatures and send the earth back into watery chaos. God will completely uncreate creation. It is worth pausing for a moment and considering, do you believe that this is what your sin deserves? Or do you think of your sin as not that big of a deal? A little slip up, an oopsie-daisy, I'll do better next time. Sin is a big enough deal that God determined to destroy the entire world with a flood, and the waters of the flood did not wash the sin from our hearts. So if we are sinners under God's wrath, is there any way to please God and to return into his favor in this text? So third, we will see God provide a way of salvation for those who believe. So that was all a little bit heavy, and I think we're ready for some good news. If we look at Genesis 6-8, we see that in a world where all of creation has fallen into sin 
and under God's judgment, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I want to return to the questions I posed at the beginning. Why was God pleased with Noah? Is that favor available to us? If it is, how? Some see favor in verse 8 as electing grace, God's electing grace without reference to Noah's righteousness. Well, it is true that God chose Noah before the foundation of the world out of free favor, and it is true that his faith is a gift from God, worked in his heart by the Holy Spirit, and it is true that his righteousness is the fruit of faith. I don't think that that is what Moses is saying in this verse. I think that Moses is talking about Noah's practical, lived-out righteousness, and not his positional, received righteousness. How do we see this? First, in verse 5, we saw that the world was bad, bad, bad. Verses 6 and 7, God is sad, sad, sad. In verses 6, 13, and 17, God is mad, mad, mad. Now here, Noah is good, good, good. He says it three times. In verse 9, look with me at verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. The last verse of the chapter says Noah did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7 is going to pick this up as something of a refrain and repeat it. Moses is taking pains to show us that Moses, Moses, Noah, Moses is taking pains to show us that Noah is different and Noah is obedient. Also, if we go outside of Genesis, we see other biblical authors use Noah as an example of, example of exemplary righteousness. So why did God have favor on Noah? Because, at least in part, Noah was righteous. But, if we stop there, all we have is a moral example of works righteousness for us to follow. And if we are bad, 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 that is bad news. Now, Noah is a moral example for us to follow, but that is only part of the picture. We have to get there by the right route. So let's press a little deeper into the text and ask where Noah's righteousness came from. We see that Noah walked with God, Last week, we saw Enoch walk with God and escape death. So Moses compares Noah to Enoch and places him in this line of faith, trusting in God's promise of a coming Savior. Another clue in the passage is that while Noah is blameless in his generation, he is still a man of his generation. The generation where every intention is only evil all the time. So if Noah is different, it is despite the fact that that he has this nature. We will see Noah's fallen character in chapter 9 and discover that he cannot be the promised offspring. To get the full answer to our question, I think we need to go back to the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. I'm going to read the part of Enoch as well. So if we look at Hebrews 11, verse 5 through 7, by faith... Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. 
By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The phrase commended as having pleased God reflects how one ancient translation rendered walked with God. So in that sense, both Enoch and Noah were commended as having pleased God. And what did Hebrews just say about pleasing God? It's only by faith. Noah drew near to God by faith and believed that God exists and believed that God rewards those who seek him. And he became an heir. His obedient actions in constructing the ark demonstrated that he feared God and that he had become an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. God was pleased with Noah. God had favor on Noah because he had real, authentic faith that resulted in real actions. The actions didn't save Noah. Noah's righteousness didn't save him. His faith did. But as the book of James teaches, faith that doesn't work is dead faith. And what or who did Noah have faith in? Noah had faith in God and his promises. Look at me, look with me at verse 18. God says to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God promised salvation to Noah. Noah had faith that when the waters of judgment came, God would be faithful to his promise to preserve Noah and his family alive. But God also had made a promise that extended beyond Noah and his family. Noah trusted in the promise that a coming offspring would crush the head of the serpent and conquer sin and death by being bruised himself. So why did Noah find favor in God's eyes? God was pleased with Noah because Noah believed God's promises, including the promise of a coming Savior who would conquer sin and death. Noah's faith was not merely intellectually emotional. It was lived out in radical obedience. Noah was saved by grace through faith in the coming Messiah. We have favor in God's eyes in this same way. We please God by faith when we believe that God exists and he rewards those who seek him. We please God when our faith results in radical obedience. We please God by faith when we trust in the offspring of the woman who was promised to crush the head of the serpent and conquer sin and death. And for us, on this side of the cross, we know who that offspring is. That offspring is Jesus. Where Noah found favor in God's eyes as a believing sinner, Jesus was perfectly favored in God's eyes. He is the one over, God, over whom God declared, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Where Noah had real but imperfect righteousness that came from faith, Jesus is the one who was perfectly righteous with his own righteousness. He was perfectly blameless in his generation. Not only did he walk in perfect harmony with God as a man, but he is God himself in human flesh. Where Noah's small family found safety in the flood, 
because of Noah's faith and righteousness. Now countless people from every nation on earth will be carried safely through judgment because they have become part of God's family through faith. Jesus is the one who took the flood of God's wrath on himself so that all who are united to God by faith may enter the ark of salvation and rest in safety. Jesus is the one who is bringing us safely through the waters of judgment and death into a new creation where everything that causes sin and sorrow and death will finally be erased and we will walk with God perfectly in righteousness, full of life and joy and peace. This is how we know we have favor in God's eyes. Only by faith in Jesus. The sin of man and the sadness and anger of God fall on Jesus. And in him we are righteous before God and God is well pleased with us. Praise God. Hallelujah. If you have faith in Jesus, God looks on you and he is glad, glad, glad. Do you believe that this is true for you today? Are you clinging to Christ today? By faith, you can rest assured that God looks on you with favor. God is not angry or disappointed. He's not distant or annoyed. He rejoices over you with loud singing. From this place of acceptance before God, we are able to truly walk with God. He has given you his Holy Spirit. He has appointed good works for you to walk in them. So step out and live faithful lives in the blessed assurance that nothing you do or do not do can remove God's favor on you. And all of your good works are blessed evidence of that. I want to say a brief word to unbelievers this morning, and then we'll wrap up. Some of you here this morning or watching online are not trusting in Jesus Christ and are still living in corruption and violence. God did promise that the waters of the flood would never again cover the earth, but he also promised that a greater wrath is coming. And this morning, the way of salvation is still open. God has delayed judgment for another morning. None of us are promised tomorrow. None of us are promised even this afternoon. Do not delay. Do not delay. This sweet salvation can be yours. Eternal life can be yours. Jesus himself can be yours. You can know that God looks on you with favor. Do not delay. This room is full of people who would love to introduce you to Jesus. Grab someone after service and ask them about Jesus. If they don't know Jesus, both of you can go find someone who does. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are great sinners. You have great sadness and great wrath. And Christ is a great, great Savior. So I pray that as we go this morning, that we would cling to Christ, we would cling to Christ alone, um, give us grace, bring us all the way home, bring us safely through judgment. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.